Well, good morning, everyone. As the children are exiting, I wanted to welcome you to Woodlawn Chapel this morning. It's good to be with you. Um, most of you in this room probably don't know who I am um, because I don't go to church here. And um, I want to introduce myself a little bit before I get started with the sermon. My name is Justin Wilson. My family comes to church here. I've had the pleasure to know Pastor Brock and Angela for the last year and a half. And um, Brock has been a tremendous blessing to me and my life, as I'm sure he's been to all of you in your lives as well. And I'm thankful that they get a week to rest as he's been at it for a long time here since the church has been planted. I'm a Charleston guy. I grew up less than a mile from here. Graduated Charleston High School. Graduated from Eastern Illinois University. And now I'm a uh, seminary student at Indianapolis Theological Seminary and um, training to preach and to teach the Word of God. And so I'm thankful to Brock for giving me this opportunity today to preach here. And most of you probably already know this, but I want to remind you how blessed you are to have Brock as your pastor. I've already said he's been a blessing to me and to know of his faithfulness to this church for the last year and a half, almost two years coming on for his faithful teaching every single week and Angela's leading the children's ministry. They rightfully deserve this rest that they get this week. Um, So remember to thank him next week when he's back for his continued faithfulness as I have been preparing for this message I've been sharing with some of my seminary classmates and some people in my church as well as um, other people in Indianapolis that I know and that I was relieving a pastor who's been preaching for over a year and a half straight and every single time I say that people are shocked that Brock's been preaching for so long without a break and then I tell them that he's bivocational and they're even more surprised than whenever I say he has a wife and six kids. It's almost utter disbelief. So we are thankful to God for giving Brock strength and giving Angela strength Uh, to sustain him in the ministry of preaching and teaching the word and growing the church here at Woodlawn Chapel. It is so great every time I come back to visit. The church is growing and the church is thriving. It's good to see a church that loves the word of God, that um, their pastor loves the word of God, that everybody here loves the word. And so it's a joy to be here with you all today. And I'm going to pray that I'm going to give an intro into the text. And we're just going to work verse by verse through it as Brock typically does. And then Hopefully I won't be up here for too long because I think some of you probably saw that Brock wasn't here and might think you lucked out getting no sermon. Um, Unfortunately for you, there's still a sermon. And unfortunately for the rest of you, it's me and not Brock preaching it. So Brock is talented, he's gifted, he's wise, he's funny. Um, I'm none of the above. I'll stumble over my words. I will forget where I'm at and I have to find my place again. And you're just going to have to bear with me. So let's come to the Lord in prayer before we start the sermon. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for um, your Lord's Day, that we can be in your house, worshiping your name, um, singing praises, hearing your word, being in prayer with you. So we thank you for this time. We just pray that you open our hearts to your word. Um, Use me as a mouthpiece to speak your truth. It is not my words that speak today, but it's your words through me. If there's anything that I say that is not true of you, um, please help everyone to forget that and only remember your glorious truth, and your gospel message that is present today in this text. So we thank you for this time, and uh, it's all for you. It's for your name. And sure, we pray. Amen. So a brief overview of Acts before we get into the text. Um, this, is that? Okay. Okay, I'm supposed to go back one. There we go. All right, so the book of Acts, as you guys have been working through this chapter by chapter through the whole book, you're nearing the end. Um, you see the light at the end of the tunnel. There's five, chapter, five chapters left after today. And the beginning of the book of Acts is really, in the whole book of Acts, is the growth of the early Christian church. The Holy Spirit is dispensed. 
the apostles are preaching and teaching the word of God. The church is growing. And also early on in the book of Acts, you see Paul called to ministry. And a large part of this book of Acts you guys have been working through recently has been Paul's ministry. Especially last week, you saw the testimony of Paul in Acts chapter 22. And as Brock reminded you last week, and as I will remind you again this week, Paul's testimony was what his life looked like before Christ, what happened in his life because of Christ, and now what his life looks like after Christ. It's not merely a story about himself, but it's a story about Christ and the work that Christ has done in his life. And any testimony truly looks like that. It's not about us, but it's about the work that Christ has done in our lives. And I'm sure all you believers in the room can attest to that as well. It is, it is not your work and not your story, how you fix your life better, it is, but, it is, but it is how the Lord has, has saved you and has shown you the light and the goodness of his truth. And so today, chapter 23, we see the repercussions to Paul's testimony that he just preached in Acts chapter 22. We see persecution, which is the first P. I was, did something kind of helpful. We got three P's going on here throughout the text to remind you of what's going on. So there's persecution, there's disagreement among the council, there's a plot to kill Paul, there's protection from God shown through Paul, and it's really God's providence that works through this protection to preserve Paul's life because Paul has more gospel work to do. And I think it's beneficial when there's a word like providence. Some people in the Christian circles use it. Some people outside of Christian circles use it. But I think with a word like this, it sometimes is ambiguous. It's helpful to define terms before I use it four or five times the rest of the sermon. And the whole time you guys are like, what is this guy talking about when he says this? So when I'm talking about providence, I'm talking about God's purposeful sovereignty in the life of his people and in his earth that he has created. And we believe that God is sovereign, that he is all-powerful, that he is all-knowing. And then providence is focusing in on that power, that it is purposeful, not just that he runs and governs the earth, but he does it on purpose and he does things on purpose to make his gospel go forward. And this, at the very bottom on the slide, God's gospel always advances no matter the opposition. You'll probably hear me say this at least 10 times today. You'll probably be annoyed with me saying it by the end of today. But this whole Acts chapter 23, this theme is what undergirds the entirety of it. And if there's anything that I want you to remember today from however long I'm up here for, it is that God's gospel always advances no matter the opposition. So I will say it a lot. You will probably get annoyed with me, but that's the point because God's gospel always advances no matter the opposition. We're going to see that play out in Acts chapter 23. So if you'll turn with me, um, Acts 23, verse 1. I'll be in the text a lot today. If you want to follow along, if you don't want to follow along, I'll read it out loud, any of the passages that I refer to. Um, but I'll read a section of text, then we'll talk about it, then I'll read another section, and we'll talk to it. We'll just work through that all the way until we get through this whole chapter. So Acts chapter 23, starting in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 5. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you said to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I want to start with a question. Have you ever been so passionate about something that it caused you to do something you regretted? Have you ever been so passionate about something that it caused you to do something that you regretted? And many of you can probably think of 
things or sports moments or things in your life that you've been so fired up about that you said something or you did something and you regretted it. And I can think of many on my own, um, in my own life. And I want to give an example of this and want to talk some more about Paul's response to the high priest here. But in the Council of Nicaea, early church, the year 325, there's a legend of St. Nicholas, who we get our now Western Santa Claus from. It looks a lot different than what this legend of this bishop actually looked like. Um, this story goes, and I say a legend because some people say it's fact, some people say it's fiction. Nonetheless, it fills in what we're trying to get at with this. They're at the council, and the church would meet in councils when there's heresy going on, and they would meet with all the bishops, all the leaders, and they would say, here's what people are teaching is this right or is this wrong? When it was wrong, they would condemn it, say it's heresy, and they would form a doctrine and a statement on what is the truth and what is right. So at this council, this man Arius stands up and he's speaking heresy of Jesus Christ. And as the legend goes, St. Nicholas gets out of his chair, walks up, and he smacks Arius in the face for speaking heresy. And um, as I said, it's legend. We don't know if it's true. Some people say it is. Some people say it's not. But we know that the early church was so passionate about getting the truth of Scripture right that it often would lead to outrage and disagreement and raised voices and maybe even slapping a heretic in the face. Um, but this is all, because they're so passionate, they can often lead you to do something that you regretted. And the story goes that St. Nicholas later repented and asked for forgiveness, realized that was not the best response to the heretic, even though he felt so passionately about it. And we don't know here with Paul's response to the high priest if it is sinful or not, but we do know that it was extreme. He calls the Jewish high priest a whitewashed wall. And as I was studying this, I was trying to figure out what exactly he meant by this. And some commentaries reference Matthew 23, and I'll turn there and I can read that real quick. It's just two verses. Um, it's when Jesus is approaching and talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So this, what Jesus calls the scribes and Pharisees, is what Paul is now referring to the Jewish high priest as, a whitewashed wall. And the quote here on the screen is a commentator. He says, this is like a mud wall, trash and dirt and rubbish underneath, but plastered over. Saying the inside of the high priest's heart and in his soul, it is dirty, it is unclean. But he puts on this example on the outside that makes him look pure and holy and blameless when indeed he is not. And that leads Paul to being confronted, saying that this is a Jewish high priest. And Paul responds in verse 5 saying, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And we know that, God, or that Paul was blameless under law. He said he was in good conscience standing before them, but then he says this thing about the high priest. And so there's a few ways to understand this verse. Um, there's two that are possible, and the third one is my personal favorite. I don't know if it's necessarily true or not. No one has an exact interpretation of it, but the first one is that it's a new high priest. Paul hasn't been in Jerusalem for a while, and so there's a new high priest. He doesn't recognize the high priest, and so he says, um, calls him a whitewashed wall. The other is, Historically in the New Testament, there's talk of Paul's poor eyesight and that he maybe couldn't make out to see this truly is the high priest. Um, the third option, which is characteristic of Paul and also just a great response, is sarcasm. Um, he could say, I could not see that this was the high priest because he did not 
seem to be the high priest. He does not appear to be a high priest, although he seems spotless on the outside. He is rubbish, filth, and trash underneath. So we don't know what the heart of Paul's response is, um, but we do know that it is extreme. It's because he's defending the Christian gospel to these people that he so passionately reacts to the high priest. And Paul often stirs up trouble by his firm beliefs and his firm statements, and that's what we'll see in the next section. If you read with me, um, Acts 23, verses 6 through 10, it says, But when Paul perceived that one were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. And so we see in verse 6 that Paul's saying the resurrection is what this is all about. The whole reason he's here, his whole testimony is all about the resurrection. And in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, he talks about the resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you can turn there with me if you want. First Corinthians 15, this is a little bit of a longer section. It's on your screen there. We'll read the first four verses, and I'm going to jump down to verse 12. This paints in what Paul's talking about when he's saying he's preaching the resurrection. First Corinthians 15, starting verse 1, says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Jump down to verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if, the, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he, was raised, that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. If, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ has not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in this life we only have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So Paul is saying, I preach this resurrection. We believe in this resurrection. And if this is not true, us Christians are most to be pitied. And so if we're in here today and we're Christians and we believe in the resurrection, if this isn't true, this is all a waste of time for us to set apart an hour, an hour and a half on a Sunday morning to read our Bibles in the week, to talk to people about Christ. If it's not for the resurrection, all of this is foolish. And so if you're not a believer here in the room today and you just came, someone brought you along to church or you felt like coming to church today and you don't believe in this resurrection, you are more than welcome to, to pity all of us if you don't think this is true. I think as Christians, we are convinced the scriptures attest to and even history itself attests to a bodily resurrection of Christ and this is what we ground our beliefs in because the entire gospel message hinges on the whole resurrection. So Christians, today, I want to ask you, do you truly believe in the resurrection of Christ? 
If this is what Paul preaches, if this is the message that he preaches, it's not only that Christ was a good prophet, that he had great miracles, that he was a good teacher, but if he preaches that it is because Christ raised from the dead, do you believe that the way Paul believed it? It's easy as Christians to get used to going to church and to just think that we got to read our Bibles and we got to do right things, but we have to realize that our whole belief system hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I just ask you to search your hearts and make sure that you truly believe in the resurrection, not just in the good nature of Christ and the moral human that he was. There's a lot of good that is in Christ to follow, but you're not a Christian if you do not wholeheartedly believe in the resurrection of Christ. That's what Paul says. That's what he's being persecuted for. It's not for liking Christ, but it's for saying that he rose from the grave. In the book of Romans, Paul writes that Romans 10, 9 and 10, he says, if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Paul says, if you believe that God raised him from the dead, that is what saves you as a Christian. Our whole faith system, our whole belief, our whole gospel message hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as I said, one of the P's in this text is God's protection of Paul. We've seen persecution in, this, in the beginning section. Now we see some protection coming for him in verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, it says that they find no evil in Paul. He is not guilty under the law. He has no reason to receive this punishment that, he, that the Jews are trying to put on him. And then in verse 10, we see the Roman protection of Paul, where they pull him, even by force, down into the barracks to protect him from this great dissension that is being caused among the scribes and the Pharisees. We see God's protection present already, and it's only going to become more and more as we go on through the rest of this chapter. In this very next verse, we'll see God's greatest protection of Paul. Just read with me Acts 23, verse 11. But in the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And so as being Christians with our whole Bible, we can see and we can know as we read through the rest of the book of Acts that this promise to Paul here is actually a promise of at least three more years of protection. And we're going to see through the rest of Acts 23, there's going to be 40 guys trying to kill Paul in the next verse. But God tells Paul, you must also bear witness for me in Rome as you just did for Jerusalem. The reason why you're being persecuted now, you have to go do this again in Rome. And the rest of scripture tells us, the rest of the book of Acts tells us that Paul doesn't get to Rome for three more years. So this promise, that he must also bear witness to Rome, is a promise of protection from the persecution that is soon to come from the Jewish government. And the protection for Paul was for the purpose that he had more work to do. Paul had more gospel work to do. And if you're breathing, if you're here today, if you're in the church, if you're alive, God has more work for you to do. As long as you're alive, God has purpose and God has more. In the book of Job, Job's children are taken away from him. They're killed. And Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so if we truly believe that a scripture says the Lord is the giver of life and he has given you life today, there's purpose for your life. And I don't know what you come in here with. Some people are battling depression, anxiety. Some people are in financial turmoil. Some people have just received a diagnosis that is not good. And nonetheless, you are still here today and you're still living, you're still breathing, and there's still more work and more gospel work to be done if 
you are still alive. And if you are not a Christian and you're here, you may be wondering, God keeps Christians alive to do gospel work, but if I'm not a believer, that doesn't have any impact for me. And I would say, if you are not a Christian, if you're not a Christian here today, maybe the very reason God has kept you alive up to this moment, up to today, to even bring you into this church, is that you may see that he is good, may see that his gospel is a sweet, good message. The scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Maybe today is the day that you, you finally see that, and you see that the gospel message is worth fighting for, this resurrection that Paul is risking his life for is, is true, and you want to believe in that today. We don't know exactly why all of us have been kept alive, why the Lord has given us life up to this day, but we do know that he has purpose for giving us life because he is providential, because he has purpose to his power. We know that there is reason for us being here today. And one of God's greatest promises in all of scripture is within this text right here in verse 11. It says, but the following night, the Lord stood by him. And one of God's greatest promises in all of scripture is his presence to his people. He promises it to Abraham. He promises it to Moses and the Israelites. He promises it to Joshua. He promises it to the judge Gideon. And in this New Testament church, in the church that we get to live in, God promises his Holy Spirit to his people. And that is his presence always with us. His presence in this place as we sang in the song right before I came up here. It is his presence that we get to thank him for. It is his presence that we get to enjoy as believers. And it is one of the greatest blessings in all scripture is to know that God is with us. It's one of the greatest peace givers. One of the greatest things that gives the most peace to a heart is knowing despite all the turmoil, despite all the trouble, despite all the, the sin in our lives, that God is still with us and he's there to grow us and to make us more like him. And now I've talked about the protection that Paul's receiving and we'll see what God is protecting Paul from in verses 12 through 15. If you read with me, it says, And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there are more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we, that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. And this is a serious mission that these 40 plus Jews are setting out on. They're saying, we're not going to eat, we're not going to drink. We want this man dead and we want him dead soon. This is not a spiritual fast that they are doing. They're wanting to kill Paul fast. And so they are not eating, they're not drinking. They want Paul dead. They don't want him to spread this truth of the resurrection anymore. They don't like it. They don't like what he's doing. And God's providence is still present here, working and protecting Paul's life. We're going to see exactly how in the verses following this, but we know that God is protecting Paul because Paul still has work to do in Rome. Paul still has more gospel work to do. So despite these 40 to 1 odds that these 40 men are trying to kill Paul, they know exactly where he's at. God still protects Paul. And this reminds me of a story in the Old Testament, the book of Judges. It's there on the screen. We, you don't have to turn to it. I encourage you to read it. It's a fascinating story. Um, but in the book of Judges, um, the judge Gideon is called by God to go fight the Midianites. And God says, round up your troops and go fight the Midianites. So Gideon rounds up his troops. And then after he gets all of his troops rounded up, there's 32,000 of them. And God says, Gideon, you don't need that many. Um, so ask any of them who are afraid to battle, uh, ask them who they are, and then tell them they can leave. 
And to Gideon's surprise, over half of his troops leave. And then he's down to 10,000 troops after 22,000 say, I'm fearful of the Midianites, I'm out. And then, right after that, God says, Gideon, you still don't need that many. So take them down to the water and see who drinks and laps the water, looking up on the hills to prepare for battle, and see who gets on their knees and bows their head into the water, not being ready for battle. And there's only 300 men who were prepared for battle and were drinking water with eyes on the hills, making sure that there's no ambush. So God says, Gideon, take those 300 men and go fight the Midianites. And the Midianite army was 135,000 men strong. And the Israelites had 300 men. And God takes them, he gives them battle plans, and Israel triumphs and wins, and they are able to distract and get the Midianites to fight against each other. And they all end up, almost all of them killing them, each other. And then some Midianites get away, and the 300 Israelites are able to capture the remaining 10 to 15,000 Midianites. So it is this great, great battle, this great odds differential between um, the Israelites and the Midianites, but God still gets the victory because he said he would get the victory. And often, when the odds seem stacked against God, he still prevails. It's actually, not even often. It's all the time when the odds are stacked against God. He still prevails because God's gospel always advances no matter what the opposition is. It will go forward. Whether it's 40 to 1 odds, whether it's 135,000 to 300, God's gospel always advances no matter what the opposition is. There are no odds stacked too high that God can't beat. As, God protection, as God's protection of Paul unfolds, read with me. We'll do verses 16 through 22. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the councils tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. Now they're ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And this is how God has chosen to protect Paul by his nephew overhearing the Jews' conspiracy and coming and telling the Roman government that um, just a simple, a simple nephew out of place and randomly hears the conspiracy. And is God's providential work to put, his ne- put Paul's nephew in that place at that time to hear what is going on so then he can communicate it to Paul so Paul can be saved because Paul has more gospel work to do in Rome. You remember that from verse 11. And this same truth is present in our lives as well as that God protects our life. God providentially works to protect us. We've gotten to this point so far in all of our lives and we know that there's death and darkness and danger all around us everywhere we go but we are still here. So we know that God providentially protects our lives as well as he has protected Paul's life. And I wonder how often God has protected us without us even realizing it. I think of a story. My wife works at the Children's Hospital in Indianapolis, and she has a patient there who's a senior in high school. He's getting ready for the basketball season. He was captain of the basketball team. And they had a family friend come to them 
and just say that she had a dream and she really feels like there's something wrong with this guy and that they should get him checked out. And um, it was a gut feeling that she had from this dream, that this dream was true. And so his parents listen and take him to the hospital and uh, he has leukemia. And they were able to catch it early on because of this providential work of a family friend coming to tell them that there's something wrong with him to now they caught it in the early stages. He's receiving chemo treatment to hopefully get rid of the cancer. And that's, that's a crazy, great, miraculous story. Not all of us have something as clear as that. Some of you might have something as clear as that. But all of us have small little acts like that throughout our life without us ever even realizing it. But God's protection isn't just that we might live and that we might just have life. God's protection is that we might live for him, that our lives are to be pleasing unto him, that we may serve him as his followers. The Westminster Confession of Faith, it's a few hundred years old by now, but it's um, these guys collected together just formed a confession of what do we believe about the Christian church. And the very first question they ask is, what is man's chief end? And the response is this, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that is why we have life. That is why God protects our life and provides us with the ability to continue to live is not so we may just enjoy our life, but we may enjoy God with our life, that we may serve God with our life. We may live lives that are for God and not for ourselves. That is why he gives us life. Not, not that we may be selfish with it, but that we may be selfless with our lives. And God continues to protect Paul by means of the Roman government. And we'll see this unfold. Verses 23, and we're going to read 23 through the rest of the chapter. Starting verse 23, says, And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, and provide mounts to set Paul on, and bring him safely to Felix the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you, and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by, day, by night to Antipatris. The next day, they left the horsemen and to go on with him and returned to the barracks. And when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So I want to remind you, this whole text where I said at the beginning, there are three Ps going on here. There's the persecution of Paul, there's the protection of Paul, and there's God's providence working through the protection of Paul. And what's so interesting about this is it is the Roman government that protects Paul. It is the same Roman government that crucified Christ. And this is not a big time gap. The Roman government all hasn't become Christian all of a sudden, but they crucified Christ and they preserve Paul's life. And it's an interesting thing to, to wonder how that is. There hasn't been a major shift in the Roman government over the 
30-ish years between Christ's death and Paul right now. But what we do know is that God's gospel always advances no matter the opposition. And that in the time of Christ, for God's gospel to advance, Christ needed to die so that he may resurrect, so the gospel may bring forth life to all. And in this time, God needs Paul to go to Rome to continue sharing his testimony, to continue sharing the gospel. So he uses the same government that killed Christ to protect Paul's life. And that is God's work. And we don't always understand it, but we do know that we can trust him. And this is not a a sermon on government at all, but we do know that we put our trust in God. We don't put our trust in our government. The government can do something like crucify Christ and then 30 years later protect a messenger of Christ. And so we put our trust in God knowing that he has a greater plan and we don't put our trust in the government. We put our trust in God. And this whole text, as I've said six or seven times already, is showing us how God's gospel advances no matter what the opposition is. Paul had 40 men trying to kill him. God's gospel advances. Christ had to die so that God's gospel advances. This whole Christian story and the history of the Christian church, there's great persecution, there's great opposition to the gospel message, but God's gospel always advances, no matter what the opposition is, because we're here today, over 2,000 years later, worshiping God, worshiping Christ, celebrating the resurrection. As we are in Lent, we are approaching Easter, and what we wouldn't even have Christmas if it wasn't for Easter. If it's not for the resurrection, we don't have the whole Christian church. And so we know it to be true based on experience, but also based on scripture, that God's gospel always advances no matter what the opposition is. So I want to ask you today, what, what is your opposition in your life? We're all in different, different circumstances. I'm in Indianapolis. Most of you are Coles County. Some of you are surrounding cities and counties. And there's different oppositions that we face. I know growing up in this area, there's not as much of a cultural opposition to Christianity as there are in some bigger cities or some other places or in America. There's a lot of freedom to have our beliefs that we have. And a lot of people, especially in this area, even like Christian morals and like Christian principles. And we don't receive a lot of hate or a lot of opposition. There are people who don't like some of the truths that we stand for, some of the truths that Christians speak. There is, there is some of that here. But we don't face a ton of opposition, especially here in America. I think the better question is who is your opposition? It may be a family member. It may be a close friend. It may be a spouse. It may be someone who you've been trying to share the gospel with, someone who you've been trying to disciple for years and you've seen no fruit. Our opposition always looks different in our life. Maybe you don't even have someone in your life that's opposing you. If you're like me, your biggest opposition to the gospel is yourself, is your heart, is your flesh that is fearful of man, that is prideful in your own self-image, that is shameful in your own beliefs, that there's no one outside of you stopping the gospel from going forward in your life. It is your own heart. It was my story for years was I knew what was right, but I couldn't let myself follow. I couldn't let myself truly give my life to the Lord because I cared too much about what people thought about me. I cared too much about my image. I I was shameful of disagreeing with people. I didn't like to disagree with people, so I didn't want to hold tightly to Christian truths because I got in my own way. So if you're anything like me today, you probably get in the way of your own 
advancing your own growth in your Christian faith is your flesh and your sinfulness that, that stops you from growth. Um, but the good news is that it doesn't stop there, that God's gospel advances no matter what the opposition is. And if God could conquer 40 to 1 odds getting Paul away from the Jews, your flesh is no match for God. That he can work through you. He can create in you a new heart. He can show you the way to follow him. He can give you obedience. and He can do all of that in your life because he has the power to. We see his power in the Gideon story. We see his power in preserving Paul. We know that whatever the cost is, whatever the opposition is, that God's gospel always wins out, that God's gospel always advances. And so we know that if in our heart of hearts that we are the ones who keep the gospel from advancing to others in our life and even in our own life, that it is not too much of a work for God to do that in your life, to overcome that. If you're an unbeliever, and if you're still a believer, I'd say tune in anytime I address an unbeliever. It's always good for believers to be reminded of truth too. We often, I've said the gospel probably 30 times today, and it might be, what is the gospel? What, is, what does that mean? And the gospel literally means good news. But if there's no bad news, then we don't really have good news. We just have news. So if we say the gospel is good news, there must be bad news. And the bad news is that we're all sinful, and we are not perfect, and we're selfish, and we're prideful, and we get in our own way, and we think about ourselves more than we think of others, and we are consumed with the things of this world rather than the things of God. And that is all of us here, even the Christians who have been in this room, who have been Christians for 50 years, still deal with that. And the bad news about that is that God is perfect and God is holy, and we are not. And Scripture tells us that all sin separates us from the glory of God. But what the good news is exactly what Paul preaches and what Paul is being persecuted for is that Christ died and rose again and the resurrection is the receipt of the payment that Christ gave on the cross to bear our sins, to bear our burdens, to bear our shame, that as sinners, we rightly deserved what the cross was. But Christ took that on for us. So those who believe in him may have eternal life. So the good news is that if you realize that there is some bad news, that you are not perfect, that you make a lot of mistakes, you don't follow God every single day, um, the good news is that there is um, someone who's taken our place. And that if we believe in him, if we follow in his ways, um, we get this eternal life that Paul talks about. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, like I quoted earlier, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, say with your mouth, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, your belief and your profession of faith is what saves you. So that's, that's the good news, is that God's gospel goes forth. No matter what the opposition is, you are not too big of an opposition for God to work in your life. The Jews conspiring to kill Paul weren't too big of an opposition for God to work and to protect Paul because he had more ministry to do. And if you are here today, there's more ministry in your life to do. So I encourage you, um, remind yourself this week, remind yourself daily that no matter what the opposition is, that God's gospel always goes forth. And it's not solely because of us, it's because of the work that he does in our lives and the work that he has done through Christ that he makes that happen. So you all pray with me. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your gospel message and your truth that we don't have to be perfect, um, but we just have to believe in you and believe that your son died and rose again. That is the resurrection and why we have this Christian faith, that Paul was so convinced of this, that he was willing to deal with persecution, um, that you were 
willing to preserve his life for that. And so we thank you that you have given us life. We pray that we can use this message and use this passage in scripture to encourage us to, to know and to trust you and to trust that your gospel always advances no matter what the opposition is. So we thank you for that truth today, Lord. Sharon, we pray. Amen. Will you please stand for our closing song? Letting go of every single dream I laid one down at your feet Every moment of my wandering Never changes what you say I try to win this world, I confess My hands are weary, I need your race, mighty warrior, king of the fight. No matter what, I change it by my side. When you don't move the mountain, I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the water, I wish I could walk. Through. When you don't give the answer, I cry out to you. You know what tomorrow brings There's not a dead you have not seen So when all things be my life in breath I know what you want, Lord, and nothing less When you don't move the mountain, I'm needing you to move When you don't pop the water, I wish I could walk Church, thank you for letting me be here today and listening to a 22-year-old talk to all of you for a little while. I appreciate your grace. Um, if you need any prayer after service, I'll be up here. And I just want to close with a psalm, and then you guys can be on your way. Psalm 67 says this, God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. 
Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Amen.